The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. We are here today to bury the idea that fashion in New York City is dead. F- Milan, f- Paris, f- Los Angeles, the fashion capital of the world is New York City, baby. Designers, buyers, high-end retailers, magazines, reporters, and mega-rich patrons. Every single part of the fashion industry retail chain is some way based out of this city. From Fifth Avenue storefronts that primarily cater to the Real Housewives of New York, Jersey, and occasionally Atlanta, to interns at FIT doing grunt work at Condé Nast. According to the New York City International Business page, quote, New York's fashion industry employs over 180,000 people, accounting for over 6% of this city's workforce and generating $10.9 billion in total wages. An estimated 900 fashion companies are headquartered in New York, which is also home to more than 75 major trade shows and thousands of showrooms. And New York has been a staple of the fashion world for years, with the first fashion week debuting in 1943. When the rest of the world was still at war, New York was like, but make it fashion. There is a reason why every piece of notable fashion media famously took place in New York. Sex in the City, The Devil Wears Prada, the original Queer Eye, all in New York because New Yorkers just straight up know how to dress better than the rest of the country. Breakfast at Tiffany's didn't happen in Jersey City. Fashion print ad media lives in New York with Vogue, GQ, Cosmopolitan, and others all HQ'd out of NYC. They taught you two things, how to keep someone interested and what the next trend that you were wearing was gonna be. You wanted to know what the next hottest thing to wear was? You looked to New York first. All of this changed when the pandemic happened. What does it mean when a city that's a staple in the fashion industry can't even get consumers to leave the house? How do retailers respond to zero foot traffic? On this week's episode, is fashion dead in NYC? I'm Eitan Levine. I'm a comedian and writer from New York. I've written for the New York Times and Amazon, and I spend most of my unemployment checks on Jordans. I'm Jackson Clemens, comedian, writer, commentator on BuzzFeed, and I don't care how often they clean the subway, I'm still wearing a mask on it. It's disgusting. This is NYC is Dead, a podcast focused on proving how alive this city actually is. Every week we speak with New Yorkers that have direct influence and insight into the industries that this city is famous for and hear how it's changed in the wake of 2020. At the end of each episode, we'll get a little closer to answering the question, is NYC dead? Drexton Clemens. Aton Levine. This week's the fashion episode, the fashion extravaganza is what they're calling it on Twitter. It's been trending all day. Really all week. We've been a trending topic for so Mm -hmm. long. I just don't know what to do with myself. It's getting tired. And the internet, the masses, what they wanted to hear is about the fashion episode. And we got a banger of an episode for all the New York City is dead fans out there. Little fashionistas and fashionistos out there. And you know what? New York's the hottest city in the world. It's 98 degrees today, so it truly is the hottest city in the world right now. It is both aesthetically hot and I have been sweating for three weeks straight in a row now. I officially stopped sweating and I don't know if that's a problem yet. I don't know. That means you're dehydrated. I would go to a city MD (laughs) and have them direct you to a hospital. But with this city being the hottest and trendiest city in the world. Yes, yes. There has to be a whole bunch of people that help you figure out what the new styles are. Uh, Jenna Lyons is a massive, massive fashion staple in the city. We got to talk 
with someone that she works with, Sarah Clary, about fashion in the city and how it's been evolving, especially after this past year. Like we said in the opening eulogy, fashion changed completely over a year and a half. And New York is a city based around storefronts and based around in shopping experiences. So uh, we got a little bit uh, some insight from Sarah Clary about how New York City's fashion world has uh, changed. So take a listen. My name is Sarah Clary. I've lived in New York for too long and I've been a freelance stylist for a long time for major brands like J. Crew, uh, Burberry, Levi's, Gap. I've helped consult them for years. Um, and then I took a leap of faith and advised Jenna Lyons, who was the head of J. Crew until two years ago on an eyelash company called Love Scene. And we were also filming a reality show called Stylish with Jenna Lyons, which airs on HBO Max. So I've been doing that. And now I'm out on my own. Talk to me about that, uh, about the COVID. It was a COVID fashion line. Is that what it was? Oh, no, we did a beauty line. We, oh. we launched a beauty line during COVID and we shot like right when the world was opening up. So not, not in fashion, but obviously related to fashion. But I come from that world, the fashion. Talk to me about the beauty line. So... It's fake eyelashes, which I know you guys want. I can definitely send you some if you want to try. Please do. I'm looking for a way to make my eyes pop. <laughs> Love it. You always need your eyes pop. And honestly, a great beauty item with the mask. I play roller hockey. Are they good to sure. put, wear under a mask? They're good? I guess. You know, I don't think we've tested them in roller hockey, but you could be our first. It seems like a big blind spot. It does. <laughs> it seems like a huge blind spot on our part. Jesus. Okay. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's like they got this. Anyway. What was it like opening up a beauty brand during COVID though? Bizarre. I mean, like just doing, again, like what we talked about, like Zoom calls and all those things and trying to be creative on a computer with everyone scattered. And I also have two young kids. So I'm like teacher and the shorter to cook and the janitor and like all those things at the same time. And then we shot, we shot, we had to shoot the eyelashes obviously on the models and we designed the lashes to fit all different eye shapes. So we mm -hmm. had taken, you know, a good year of designing them on different eye shapes and different types of people and then manufactured them. And then we had them to shoot. We were like the first shoot that opened up COVID. And that was, you know, just the protocols around that and being around people. There's so many shoots happening now, but it was really scary at that time, right? To sort of get people on board and, you know, make sure we were following all the precautions. But it was stressful, but it was fun. I have a fundamental question of like, what's it like trying to sell fake eyelashes to people during a time when like people aren't going out yeah, but there's Zoom. I mean, like yeah. talk about like the, the just even the fashion push and like tops, right? Like a lot of brands like in the beginning of Zoom when people still had to like, to your point, their kid is screaming in the background, but they're like in a really important meeting and they have to be on camera like we are. And, you know, the joke would always be like, you'd be naked underneath. Like I did a sort of funny thing on my blog where I like was like, okay, have a nice night day. And I got up and I was like wearing underwear, right? Like that's sort of the joke is like everyone was just wearing tops mm -hmm. to the Zoom meeting. And so eyelashes sort of can be the same thing of like getting your eyes to pop because that's what we're sort of focusing on. And then when you go out in the world, just like the mask, beauty, <laughs> it'd be really hard to launch a, like a lipstick line. Right. Well, I mean, as things are starting to lift, what do you think is going to be the next industry that's going to blow up? I don't know if there's like one industry that I would say is blowing up. I just think they're sort of changing, right? Like, I don't know what you guys wore during COVID. Like I've checked your Instagrams. You like, you guys are sort of risk takers. I mean, wait. <laughs> risk takers I mean, in that I wear a lot of minor league baseball. Like, not <laughs> you. Drexen definitely like patterns and colors 
I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. He, he takes a lot of risks. There's a lot of Mets shirts. There, there, there are There's a lot a of different types. I wish I could describe <laughs> the judgment on your face <laughs> to the people listening to this. I just asked, if, this is your, it, it looks like I just asked if you want to go on a honeymoon to Baghdad. I do. <laughs> it was a look you're no, giving me, you're just like, you. what the hell? Uh, okay. No, I'm teasing you. No, but like, I think like in COVID, I think you probably, you probably wore everyone wore like t-shirts and jeans or sweats or didn't get out of their PJs. Right. And there's a whole pile of that shit that I have that I just want to burn. Right. I don't want to see again. Right. I just sort of lived in it. And then I would find excuses even for myself. I'm like, well, it's a Tuesday and my kids threw an egg at me. I'm going to wear a dress, you know, like to feel good about myself. Right. And mm-hmm. so I think that there's not one industry to your, to your question that's like going to blow up, but I think that there's this, I hope runway for people to sort of be like, I can wear whatever I want. And there's mm-hmm. things that I haven't bought all year. And now I want to dress up and I want to go, or I'm going to elevate my sweat look. Cause like I learned in COVID that like, I never want to put on a suit again. And like, that's my jam, you know, like there's just, I think you, we look at wardrobe a little differently now mm-hmm. and a lot of companies won't even go back. Right. You know, like Facebook is saying like, they'll go back in next year. If you go back, right. There are a lot of companies that will sort of opt out of like, at home, you know, like at home or work. So what got you into the industry? Oh God. I mean, I think there was a lot of it that was like by accident, you know, like classic gawky, not cool, like friends with the boys like that. And then clothing for me was like an escape of like, I want to be who I maybe not. And I, I learned early on that I could be a girly girl or a tomboy or whatever, like through my clothes. And that that was really cool. And so I sort of learned how to like own that and be proud of that. And then I realized that there was people making money in this industry. Like I didn't grow up around a world where there was fashion. So I grew up in San Francisco and like, it was like the gap. And I went to FIT and did a lot of cool internships at Chanel and Tommy Hilfiger and magazines. And then I landed a job at J. Crew, and that was really exciting for me because I grew up looking at those catalogs and like wanting to be in those catalogs. And it felt like a really approachable fashion versus like when I had interned at Chanel. And I was lucky enough to sort of become, you know, my men- my mentor was Jen Alliance, who sort of took that company and made it like the fashion go-to for a lot of people and the Obamas and the height of J. Crew and so I started like from there, but I was freelance for a long time and sort of just being freelance as, as you guys know, I'm sure it's similar in the, in the comedy world. It's like, you're only as good as your last job. Every day you don't work, you're not making money. Right. So you sort of learn to like hustle. You learn to sort of like figure out your spot in the industry because there's, it's oversaturated with a lot of talented people. And I do believe there's room for everyone, but you have to find your voice. And then hopefully people sort of gravitate towards you. But you know, that was it for me. I sort of, I took a niche a little bit early on in the kids market, which I was resistant to do. And it was before, like there was a lot of kids styling and and, and style around kids and, and got noticed by a lot of industry people of like, oh, we should be paying attention to that market. And it's a huge now market, obviously. How does a kid's style different from adult style? What's like the defining line? Aside from, you know, a lot more teddy bears and stars <laughs> yeah. and moons. <laughs> I mean, I think traditionally it was always just like, not cute. Like it was just sort of like, just put them in whatever. And I think when I first started, it wasn't like that it shouldn't be wearable or kid-friendly, but I was doing things that, I mean, it sounds really silly now, but like I was being playful with my styling, like taking shoelaces and making a belt or like hand painting their shoes or just like putting the same attention to their styling and their clothes that maybe adults would. 
And I think that's what sort of made it feel a little different. And now, like any pendulum, there's definitely kids' violin that looks like very adult and not kid. And then there's like all that that's like a little more like really basic. And I think somewhere in the middle is kind of what's different. It's like a high-low, right? It's like fantasy and fun and kid, but they can still be cool. Living in New York City, I will say every child dresses better than me. That is a straight-up fact. Can you talk about kids' style in New York specifically? It's like a catalog walking down the street on the <laughs> totally. Upper East Side. I mean, I don't live on the Upper East Side. I live in Brooklyn, which in itself is like the kids oh. in Brooklyn are really cool. Every Brooklyn kid looks like a better hang than me. Uh, no, yeah. I'm, I'm in Williamsburg, and the style out here is in... If I walk out in sweats, they, they kick me out to bed style. They just go, they I don't know why you're in this neighborhood. You gotta go, okay? I, I, know like, the, I know the children aren't vaping, but they all give off the vibe like they're vaping. Oh, totally. Yeah. I would call a kid out here, sir. That's how nice they dress. <laughs> That's how nice they dress. I mean, I think that now people pay attention, right? And so like they become these like mini versions of either their adults or mini versions of what adults wish that they could wear or buy, right? And like, I think we're all a sucker for something that is like little and tiny and cute. And you're like, oh, I want that. And I was a really bad shopper before I had kids. I would like be working and traveling and I would buy second thing because I was like, well, when I have kids, I'll save that. And you know, that I am that person. And so now I'm forcing them on my children or bribing them to put on the clothes that I bought them before they were born. Do you think that there is a specific New York style that you go, this is new. When you see it, you go, this is New York. Or do you think that Mm. like, it's so funny when I travel a lot to LA and I always feel like I see the same looking style there. What I love about New York is that I can be in Brooklyn and then go up to the Upper East Side and I can walk by 10 people that all really look different. And I love that because it's really inspiring. There's a lot of just visual inspiration in that. And I think what it really is, is that I think New Yorkers are just chic by nature, meaning like they know certain things, how they should fit in terms of like jackets and layers, because we're used to that. So there's a certain innate sense of tailoring that I think New Yorkers get versus other cities, because we are a city of like four seasons and we're outside a lot. Right. And so you sort of have like, you need that great coat or you need that great shoe because you're walking. And so in essence, you end up looking more pulled together. What do you think are going to be some of the most major changes in this industry moving forward after the pandemic? I think the bigger thing is that like a lot of brands won't survive. We've already seen that a lot of brands can't survive or they've had to reinvent themselves or they're holding on by a thread. I think it does to the point of people feeling stuck, like being creative and being stuck in that, I think emerges from that, like a great renaissance in art in general, whether it's in music or in fashion, it's like people are home and they're creating and they're challenging themselves. And there will probably be amazing things that come from that. And I'm excited to sort of see that. I think the biggest change is just like the flexibility with wardrobe that maybe that there's not this feeling of things that you have to like what box you have to fit in style wise, because you've sort of like, who cares? You know, I I do hope that there's a sense of like people wanting to dress up again, because I think that's sort of fun. But I also to each his own, if that's not you, that's not you. But I think there is a sense of people like, I want to buy something and go out. Wait, so you you looked at her, you would have looked at her Instagram. So what's your advice to us? Yeah, for our styles. Jackson, I think you do color really well and you wear colored shirts really well. And not, neither you have to do traditional things. I think you should lean into the, the color of the print that you do because it uh-huh. looks really great on you. And also just like your shoulders, I think it looks fantastic. So I think Thank more you. of those items, even for like basic everyday stuff, I think you should just take risks too. Like they're a colored blazer or suit you wear with a t-shirt and jeans. Okay, 
Now, you know, I think that you need to be like, I like the idea of you in like a uniform. You have a really nice beard. Thank you. It's a nice color. Like it has a little red in it. Yeah, we don't know where that came from. But I like <laughs> it. The mailman. I like it. I got nine, uh, 23 in Mead and no, no, no Ireland at all. Okay. At 96.8% Ashkenazi Jew. Okay. But I, I really yeah. like it. Like I like leaning into like you like, do you do a lot of baseball hats? Every day. I, I, Every day. Like, yeah, because I don't want to get cancer on my head. I get it. Okay. So I love that, but I lean into that. But I also would like, I love you in like keeping it almost like Japanese uniform. And what I mean by that is like a cool like denim jacket that's beat up and whatever t-shirt you want underneath. Right. And like mm-hmm. a really like tailored Navy khaki. It's like well done. And you just buy that nice one over and over again with like a cool sneaker and you mix it up there because I think the uniform on you looks really sharp. Oh, thank you. Right. Like but also man. like it brought like your shoulders and everything. Like, and if you have like a collar by your neck, is there anything I shouldn't do? I don't think you should do like lean into like every day, a t-shirt with like something on it. And I'm meaning like, like, <laughs> like switch it up. <laughs> yes. That Cause I you're agree. like fitting into like the, like the comedian. That's like the comedian look. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah. Is like the t-shirt, but I don't think like get rid of it. No, I think the, the other issue is I used to be way bigger. I used to be like 320 really? pounds. And Whoa, congrats. You lost a lot thank of you. weight. Thank you. Shopping for heavy. You know what? Here's what I want. You ever, it's shopping for heavy people. It sucked. As it's a heavy hard. person, it's awful. It is like truly, truly, it's a mess. It's really awful. I just did a big campaign with a, a brand that I can't say, but like is a massive brand and they were expanding their size inclusion. And I really had an honest conversation with them of like, there are certain stereotypes and things that we put larger sizes in. And why are we doing that? And like styling items for them versus just scaling up or, you know what I mean, from the smaller sizes. And I think the industry has a lot to think about in that world. There's a lot of good companies that are doing it better, but companies that are just sizing up is not always the answer. So I agree. I don't think it's great out there. And then on the retail experience side, also, like I I joke about this on stage, but anytime I'd shop heavy, like you just bought to the bottom corner of a department store. I know it's where there's like four things your size, and then you got to pick two of those things. But I would I would be curious. I think a lot of people don't know their sizes and are shopping too big because they're like, oh, that's comfortable and that feels good, right? And so I do think there's that sense of like, like sometimes when I see someone on the on the subway and their suit is down here like they're just getting the size that they think makes sense off the rack versus their true size i think that this is a thing that's brought up about how people don't know how to size that fit clothes for themselves but i will say this also the people who make that point don't realize that a lot of times you're sizing up because you don't want the clothes to because no matter how thin you are any constriction Fair. at all feels like you know people are staring at the but rolls 30 bucks at the tailor and you could fix it slightly and then you could yeah. have it for longer too oh for sure because i think sometimes people have this feeling of like well i'm bigger so i want to wear bigger things to hide that versus like tailoring it to you and like owning that and that actually maybe supports your body frame better is fashion in nyc dead no it's alive and well people are out it's beautiful out, which means also like people want to show some skin. People mm-hmm. have been bored out of their minds in their houses and they're shopping and having fun. So it is not dead. No, I don't think so at all. Every week 
On Saturday night, 7.30 in Central Park, we have NYC is Dead live, and we like to record a little, a little tiny chunk of the podcast every... A little chunk, nothing too crazy. We want to give you guys a little taste. A little of, snippet, a sample, if you will. A smell. You walked by the bakery of New York, you smelled it, and this is what this is. This gives you a little bit of a taste of what live entertainment is like in the city. A lot of people think live entertainment isn't happening. Live entertainment is happening in the city. Not only is it happening, it's been happening. It's been happening the whole time, and mm-hmm. if you are free on a Saturday night around 7.30... Why don't you come on out to our show? We have an all-female brass band, the Brass Queens. Come on out. Uh, 100th and Central Park West every Saturday at 7.30. And this is a recording from our last show. So I know no one can see it right now, but between the two of us, who's the most fashionable? That's right. I know everyone, if you think Aton's the most fashionable, clap it up right now. Okay. Thank you. And keep in mind, if I can just saw myself a little bit, I did buy this TLC sweat t-shirt from an Old Navy on 125th Street. So, oh. yeah, it's pretty much the second row of Harlem. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you think I'm the most fashionable, clap it up. Yeah. Wow. You know, I knew you were. I didn't know the audience agreed that much. <laughs> that was jarring. Uh, <laughs> so a question that we've like been trying to figure out all week is, like, what makes New York style? What is New York? York fashion. What is New York fashion? Uh, what do you guys think New York fashion? We want to talk to you guys. Who here thinks they're the most fashion? Bring it. Oh, bring it. Come here. 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 Like, what kind of style is... You can't come up here and ask us the question after being... No, 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 I'm just confirming the question. Yeah. I think it's, like, black is the color. You think black Black is New York style? Black and white is, like, very New York. Like, edgy blazers. Mm. Uh, What do you do? I actually work in tech. Oh, okay. (laughs) Most fashionable industry. But but I've lived in New York for, like, eight-plus years, and I have some friends who are in... Fashion. I follow fashion bloggers. What do they? What do they do? What are the fashion bloggers and your friends saying? I mean, most of them. Like, I look at what they wear, and it's like black and white. Blazers <laughs> and white. Very chic, but not like trying too hard. Got it. Like you woke up in a really nice T-shirt somehow. So it's very much Beyonce, I woke up like this vibes, but still black and white and blazers. Yeah, like I had a fun night out. Really, like I went out, but then I woke up. So is it like, is it like food stains on the black and white because you went out the night before? Also, like you're just describing clothes. I think that's the big issue here. You're just like, what's fashion? Black and white. <laughs> also, she, you're like assigned to the blazers. You're like, I woke up, and trust me, there was a blazer involved. There was a blazer involved when I woke up. Who disagrees with her? Okay, let me... She's saying you guys are very fashionable. That's what she's trying to say. Because we're black and white? Yes! Whoa! Whoa! Thank you. Thank you. You can see me on Fashion Week for 15. And you can see me off Twitter for the next week. Uh, no, that's actually not what I meant. I Let me get this straight. You didn't mean that we're fashionable because one of us is white and one of us is black? No, because we don't have a blazer. That's what I'm saying. It's two men in a blazer. It's the blazer that really counts. And you've got... Which one of us would be more likely to wear a blazer? And keep in mind, whatever your answer is, it is racist. 
But you have to answer, though. You, you might be better. Wow, anti-Semitism rears its evil head once again. I, who would have thought? Anyway, thank you so much. You're not a racist. Uh, he's the witness. <laughs> oh, God. Does anybody have any counter arguments to New York fashion just being white shirts and black pants? Like, yeah, she's right. She's right? So why is no one here dressed like it? Okay? Yeah. I'll say it. I'm seeing a lot of skin. How New York works is like everyone wears whatever they want whenever they want. Are you from New York? No. Okay. That's okay. You, you, you sound like a cooler Matthew McConaughey. Yeah. 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 The thing about hey. New York is everybody just keeps getting older and yeah. younger. And you know what I think about New York fashion? New York fashion's all right, all right, all right, baby. It's all just a flat circle of fashion. <laughs> Like it's, you could wear a trash bag and you would look cute, probably. She's done that before. <laughs> You've done that before? Uh, like, yeah, you should totally try it, guys. <laughs> just, I mean, you just put a trash bag on. Maybe, like, put, like, a little belt or something. Okay, wait, 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 wait. Before you guys judge, you judges, what brand? I mean... D&H Photo. That's <laughs> not brand You look good, you look good on fashion. You go to B&H, baby. Okay, thank you so much. Give it up. Are you guys ready for more show? You know, when it comes to merchandising, to marketing the clothing in store uh, experiences, there are people that are brought in, merchandisers that are brought in to set up the individual kiosks and displays and everything that it comes to making you stop while you're walking and pick up a tie or a shirt. See, a lot of people don't know this, but the infrastructure, the ecosystem of a, of a good department store is not just the employees. It's not just the management. It is these people who come in. And make these things look so, so freaking sexy. So you go, I want to look good in that. And you think you're making these decisions on your own. That's the craziest part is that their job, marketing marketing people, merchandising people's jobs, their entire job is to make it think you think that you came to this conclusion on your own. Like you're like, oh, I need this. This is something I need. They are therapists for your aware. <laughs> they They're fashion therapists. So uh, we talked to Loretta Cunningham. She works as a, a merchandising expert. Uh, she gets brought in to set up different displays and everything around the different stores and malls, specifically in New York. And let me tell you, she makes it look good. Oh, yeah. So good. If you got OCD, this is the job for you. Let me tell Sick. you, this is the job, especially if you color OCD, is that's what we learned. Oh, 100%. She had some really great insight onto like everything that's happening in the industry right now, and also some of the challenges that retail stores are facing right now with employees. Especially because her business has not picked up to pre-pandemic levels yet. So she's still very much in the thick of trying to figure out what to do and how to respond to the stores not being fully open yet. So this is Loretta Cunningham, a merchandising expert. I'm Loretta Cunningham. I've been in the retailing industry a long time. I used to be a buyer for Macy's way back when. And then I was a product manager for Federated Stores. So I developed product that went to stores under the private label accounts. And then from there, I got into merchandising. And it was a very odd story. Back in the 80s, when Sears decided to go after soft lines, you know, versus their tractors and stuff like that, they came to a company that I was merchandising for and asked if we knew how to go into stores and merchandise product because their, their expertise was in 
tractors and washing machines. Mm -hmm. So the company I worked for asked me to start an in-store merchandising program, which transformed a few years later into my own company. And I have about between eight and 10 clients that I've been dealing with for about eight or nine years. And we just solely go into department stores and specialty stores across the country and merchandise their product to make sure that it gets out on the floor. So it's, it's an odd business model because you would think when you go into a Macy's or a Kohl's or a Dillard's that they would merchandise the product themselves, their own salespeople. But instead, in certain product categories, they have outside services come in and display the products for them to make it look good. Take us through your process of how you like figure out how to merchandise for each individual client. It depends on the product. It depends on the fixturing in the stores. I mean, my expertise has been in men's neckwear and dress shirts. So if you walk into a store and they're just hanging racks for neckwear, the best thing to do is to make all the ties look like soldiers, straight, neat. And then you either do it by color and pattern or by pattern and color. Color pattern is a more visually appealing way to do it because when someone walks into the store to buy something, they're not going in saying, I want to get you know a, a paisley tie. They're going in, I want a blue tie. And so whatever color hits their eye then they'll go through and then find the pattern that they like. You said you were doing lawnmowers at one point. Did I miss that? No, 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 no. Me, uh, <laughs> actually, I did do lumber at one point, Home Depot, but that's a size. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did, you merchandise lumber at, Harm, at Home Depot? We've yeah. got some wood over here. This is, what color wood would you like? Would you like dark? Would you like light would you like color some pais- paisley wood? We have patterned <laughs> wood. Two by fours, two by eights, two by sixes. Because when you go into when you go into a Home Depot and you're looking for a two by something, you want it all to be organized and straight and neat. And so, yes, we did that for a while. So is it organizational or is it creative? It's both because good merchandising is a silent salesperson. That's our logo. So explain a little bit about like Excelsior pre-pandemic, what that looked like. And then what was it like in the early days of the pandemic? Did it shift your business at all? It, it shut it down. We're still not back 100%. So pre-pandemic, we were in Arizona for our annual kickoff meeting of the season, where we went in and we reviewed all the clients we were going to be working for, all of their visions and how we were going to incorporate that vision and the stores. And we were on track to have the best year of the com- in the history of the company. And on March 17th, we were on our weekly conference call. And we were hearing about everything that was going on in the city. And me, of course, being located in New York, just said, you know what, guys, this isn't going any. Let's stay out of the stores because we would call the stores and make an appointment. And when we made some appointments, they said, well, we really don't know if we want third party because that's what we're considered people in the stores because of what's going on with the pandemic. We're not sure we can keep our employees safe if you come into the stores. So on the 18th, we shut everything down. And then, as you all know, it snowballed. And we went in with the attitude, you know what? We're going to do this. We're going to flatten the curve. You know, we were all listening to whatever our governor was saying. Wear a mask, wash your hands, stay home. And we'll be back. I said, we'll be back by June. Father's Day is going to be robust. You know, people are going to be out. Well, Father's Day came and went. Back to school season came and went. And we did some part-time work in November, December for dress shirts. And then January, again, we were shut down and we're still not up full time. We're only coming back part-time in certain markets 
as of May 1st. Which markets? Florida, Texas, Arkansas. Every market that was like, uh, what pandemic? <laughs> They're like, we need, we need clothes again. <laughs> that famous <laughs> what pandemic belt in the South. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's unbelievable when you talk to people across the country and you, you know, we'd be talking about our experiences here. No, the malls aren't open regular timing yet. We're still working reduced hours. We still have to wear a mask when we go into the stores. And they're like, what are you talking about? It's fine. And we're like, yeah, okay, it's not fine, but okay. (laughs) Do you feel like New York is starting to uptick in the same way? Or do you think it's going to take a a little bit longer for New York? I could talk to you about some of the department stores in the city that we've been into. In April, they were still barren, um, not a lot of new product, no customers. You could shoot a cannon. And you wouldn't hit anything. It would just go straight down the aisle. When we were in the past couple of weeks, the stores have been busy again. So tourism seems to be coming back. People are back shopping in midtown department stores. I have friends in the industry that haven't been in their offices that are now in two to three days a week. So New York is definitely coming back. What Have you noticed any change in merchandising now that stuff is opening up? Are they being marketed differently? No, the problem is because of supply chain issues, there isn't as much product available. Oh. Walk us through that. So normally where you would merchandise a rack, a table with 120 units on there, now we're trying to make 60 units, half of that look as presentable and not barren. And when I say supply chain, it can be that we didn't know how to predict what to bring in, what the usage was going to be. Because again, we, we place product out six to nine months. So nine months ago, when you were looking to ship things in for spring, you didn't know if the pandemic would be over. You didn't know what stores would still be open. You didn't know. So you had to use your best guess. So now our job is to make less look more, like more. Yeah, I've noticed that. Like going to some, uh, some clothing stores and things like that out here, it's like they have all four seasons out. On display right now being like look we don't if you if you're trying to go to aspen we have we have pants <laughs> if you're trying to you know if you're trying to go to the beach we have something but like it, it nothing ever looks that full do you think that the online shopping market is like detrimental to the in-store shopping experience there's been a lot of talk about online 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 before the pandemic and online was only 15 to maybe 20 percent of the business i think now more people have become more comfortable with it because of the pandemic. So maybe it's 30%, but I still think the American consumer wants to walk in, touch and feel. Now, I also am speaking about probably people 40 and above because those are still the shoppers versus the millennial generation that has been so used to everything landing on their doorstep. We're, I mean, we're too broke to shop. That's kind of where we're at. Well, but I've heard also from being in the stores that they're a little disappointed by not knowing what the quality that they're getting. So some kids now, or kids, millennials or younger generation, however you want to use the right word, because I'm always inappropriately using the wrong words. Um, and you'll get canceled. <laughs> exactly. I'm always canceled. Minimum sued, maximum canceled. That's what, yeah, that's yeah. what we strive for here. I would start getting that notes uh, apology. <laughs> apology together, right? <laughs> But they come in and now they want to see what they're buying. They want to know what they're, maybe it's because they are broke, that they want to come in and see what their money is getting. Historically, what made merchandising in New York uh, stores different than the rest of the country? Population. In New York, because we're so densely populated, 
and we shop more than other places and we shop continuously. So the interesting thing is if, if you go to Florida, the mall's a destination to have lunch, sit outside and then shop. If you're going into to a department store in the city, you're going there for a reason. You're not going there to have lunch. We have so many other restaurants. If you go into a mall in the suburban areas, like if you're looking at something in Queens or Cross County in the Bronx, you're going there because it's not someplace to hang. It's someplace because you want to buy something. So we just do a lot more volume in these stores. If you look at any department store that's got a New York presence, and I'm talking about Kohl's and Target and even Price Club, those mm-hmm. stores, top 10 to 20 stores, are all located in the New York metro area and suburbs. Those stores are all in the top 25 stores in the country. So shopping and merchandising here is more imperative because of the volume that we do. We go into the stores here in the New York metro market more than once a week, where in a Florida, we'll only go maybe once a week or once every other week to merchandise because they stay cleaner and neater. Here, we just, their stores are trashed. That's so funny. I mean, I, I don't know if you've ever been into like a TJ Maxx in the city. It looks like Baghdad. It really does. Like, it, it looks terrible. It looks like a bomb just went off. There's a, on, on a, in the Upper West Side. Oh, they closed it down, but the Century 21 in the Upper West Side. Yeah. Oh, my God. That, that, the Century 21 in the Upper West Side was, was a hellhole of a place to be at. The, the deals were amazing, but the things that you had to go through to get all the things that you needed were just terrible. Yes, absolutely. So wait, why do you think stores don't do it on their own? Why do you think that they get other people to do it? Do you think that like people at stores just aren't creative enough? Because let me tell you, nothing is more creative than a Target employee that's worked 80 hours this week. Well, there's one store in Atlanta, a major market that has over 85 openings for people. People just aren't working. And that's the problem that we're having. We can't get people to go to work. So they're thankful for anything that they can get. Do you think that they should be paid more? Or do, you, do you think that, what do you think causes that crisis? I think it's a combination of things. I think people reevaluated their life and what they were doing. So if you had an entry level or a minimum type wage job and you have kids at home, that maybe it's more important to be with your family. I, I think the stores pretty much pay fair wages for what you're asking them to do. I also think that not enough young people want to go out and do entry-level positions. That's the problem. Because, you know, years ago, if you needed a job, you went to work in a store, you know, and that was while you were in high school and college. But today, that doesn't seem to be the case. It seems you only get people, you know, 65 and over that want to go do it. No one younger. Oh, so you're saying that no no teenagers, like in high school kids, not wanting to work in these retail centers is becoming an issue. Yes. Yeah. I mean, cause that was, that was their entire staff for a while. It right. was either right. very young kids or like 65 plus Walmart greeters. So did no one, did no one realize that in a workforce based entirely out of high school kids was probably a bad idea? That's not. <laughs> so they're having an issue. So now high school kids don't want to work in these jobs specifically. Well, part of it is they're not vaccinated. So I don't know if they're being required to be vaccinated, but they're not vaccinated or they they may be they're collecting, you know, 50 bucks unemployment. I don't know, you know, but that a lot of people chose not to go back to work. Okay, so supply chain issues, workforce issues. How does retail and merchandising get out of this? We have to become creative and figure out how to hire new people and make the jobs more exciting. 
All right, I have an idea. A draft. We draft high school kids. The second you turn 16, yeah. you're in a workforce draft. Mm-hmm. It is all retail. And then you you get some baristas out of that. You mm-hmm. get retail. You get some servers. Some it's waiters. like the sorting hat, but the government decides. Exactly. It's the Hogwarts re- uh, the first job sorting hat, entry-level position sorting hat. And then you have to work those jobs and you become a better human being down the line. But think about it. If you could do something on the internet and not have to be tied down to a store till nine, 10 o'clock at night, unless you're paying these kids $25 an hour, they're not going to jump at the opportunity. So what do you, so what do you think gives then? Does it, are they going to, do they have, are they going to raise wages or are. I know in New York, they pay between 14 and $18 an hour to be a clerk in a store. And that's me as a fair wage for what you're doing. You know, you're not going to feed a family of four on it, but as a part-time job, I think that's a fair wage. Here's the thing. Like, I don't even disagree with you. I just think the concept of like the value of dollars and stuff like that got shifted when the government, you know, added on that $300, you know, PUA, uh, you know, weekly unemployment insurance. So now retailers would have to logically compete with the PUA thing, correct? Mm-hmm. So the question is, how does, how do retailers address that? And like you said, to make the job more enticing. So how do they make it more enticing? And do you see a path out of this? Or do you think that just stores are going to close and eventually it's just going to be consolidated into a couple of retailers? Well, it's already been consolidated down. Honestly, I I think, and I don't know if I'm right or wrong, but I think that as we've interviewed people from, you know, FIT who are coming into the workforce to work for us, if everybody had, and I use the term loosely, the Google model where there's free lunches and free snacks and making your own schedule, if it was a much more loose environment instead of the militant type of environment, your shift is from nine to five and you have a two hour break and a five minute bathroom break. And, you know, you have to make so many sales. You have to figure out how to take. You just described like hot Iraq. (laughs) (laughs) I think, I think that these, these companies are going to have to come to the workers now. I don't think the workers are going to. I think every Hollister should have an omelet bar. (laughs) <laughs> you're going to have exactly. to come up with something like that to entice these kids because unless they're really destitute, no one's going to go out. I think that Target should have their employees be able to fill up an entire shopping cart of whatever they want once a month. Yeah. Oh, uh, you should be able to supermarket sweep it once a month. Once a month, a supermarket sweep. <laughs> and honestly, I think Target's Target's employment would go through the roof. I would work at a TJ, sorry, at a, at a Trader Joe's or a Whole Foods if once a week, and once a week, once a month, I got to supermarket <laughs> sweep it. That's crazy. Come on, Leslie Jones in the background. <laughs> I love her. That's my favorite show with her on there. Would you say that Leslie Jones is the key to saving the retail industry? <laughs> yeah. hey, could you imagine her announcing everyone? Laura, <laughs> is fashion dead in New York City? No, fashion's not dead. I just think fashion is what everyone defines it as themselves. I don't think there is one set rule anymore of what's considered fashion. This is something that's been happening over the past five or six years. There used to be fashion directors, and there still are in stores. There are fashion directors that set what should be the top-looking trends. Well, today, the fashion trends are being set by Instagram and the people going in and taking a photo and saying this is what they've decided is a trend, not necessarily what we in our head thought that French blue shirts and floral ties should be the new trend for spring of 2021. Well, guess what? Nobody likes blue shirts and floral ties, they'd rather wear a floral tank top 
And that's the trend today. And that was determined by somebody going in saying, wow, look at this and putting it on Instagram and having everyone follow that they follow like it. So I don't think it's dead. It's just being determined differently. Stores aren't at 100% capacity yet, leaving the fashion industry in the dark about the future of people wearing clothing. But people still want to look hot. And as long as they want to look hot, fashion will still be alive. Even though we spent an entire pandemic only buying shirts for Zoom calls and no pants, the fashion industry isn't dead. Sure, yes, I agree. I haven't worn pants since last March, but that doesn't mean fashion is dead. The fashion industry doesn't look like it did a year and a half ago, but also neither do you. It needs some structural changes, but it's trying. And if that doesn't showcase the ingenuity of New York City, I don't know what does. Fashion isn't dead. It's just in the fitting room getting changed. NYC is Dead is a production of Embassy Row. Our executive producers are Julia Cassidy, Eden Sudley, Anna Marie Johnson, and Leslie King. This episode was produced by us, Drexen Clemens and Aton Levine, a.k.a. the Pastrami Boys. This show is edited by Maureen Begas. You can follow us on Instagram at at thisguydrex, at Aton the Goalie, and at NYC is Dead Podcast. Or email the show at NYC is Dead Podcast at Gmail. See you next week.